Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. And this is A Very Irish Murder in Cincinnati. Today's podcast is a strange story. One that would dominate newspapers for weeks today, but when it took place in 1894, it was actually so scandalous it barely saw the light of day in Ireland. I don't want to give too much away about the plot, because there's a few major twists and turns, but it's a riveting story, which, as the title suggests, is about a murder that took place in Cincinnati, in 1894. The victim and the killer were Irish and the events surrounding the murder revealed so much about emigrant life in the USA and life back in Ireland around the turn of the 20th century. I'd like to thank Nguyen Hogan for her recordings throughout the podcast and now two quick announcements. Don't forget if you live in or around New York I'll be speaking at the American Irish Historical Society on February the 28th. It is an all ticketed event and tickets are going fast, but you can get yours at AIHS.org. That's AIHS.org. Hopefully, I'll see you there. And now, before we start, in each show, I shout out to some of the listeners who've become patrons, and this week, I want to thank Anthea Walsh, Ellie Kay, Tara Lisa, Finbar Barry, Frankie Quinn, Frankie Godleyman, Gabriel Robertson, Gillian King, Terry Cullen, and breed and shine. Thanks very much folks, I really appreciate your support. These are just some of the people who keep the show on the road. They get lots of exclusive features including early access to the show with ad-free episodes, exclusive episode guides and patrons only podcasts. You can support the podcast and get these features at patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. It was a strange and unusual sequence of events that led the young Sligo woman, Molly Gill Martin, to Cincinnati, Ohio. She arrived in late 1893 at the age of 19, but unlike many of the other Irish emigrants in the city, she hadn't left home out of poverty. Her story was far more complex. Indeed, she arrived in Cincinnati at a time when her life was the source of gossip, rumour and scandal back home. She hoped she could escape this in the bustling metropolis of the city. While it did have an Irish community, some of whom were aware of the scandal surrounding Molly, Cincinnati's 
heaving industrial population of 300,000 people offered her anonymity, a soothing alternative to the ceaseless chatter of her neighbours in Sligo who knew every minute detail about her and her family. However, while few in Cincinnati knew of what she had done, there was no question this was a deeply troubling time for the teenager. As each month passed, the news that reached her from Sligo seemed to indicate the scandal was only intensifying. It was becoming increasingly clear the possibility of her ever being able to return home was fading with each passing month. It was unlikely she would ever see Ireland again. However, as the door on that life seemed to be firmly closing, Cincinnati opened another, offering Molly opportunities of a new life. She may not have wanted to be there, but the work and more importantly the wages available in the factories of this bustling city offered her an independence that would have been completely unimaginable to someone of her background back in rural Sligo. Indeed, even though she arrived in the city in January 1894, by March she was working as a clerk in the Pulvermarker Galvanic Company, a major employer in the city. The rituals of her new life were totally removed from the old life she had left behind, one that was becoming increasingly just a memory. Rising at six or before it each morning, she left the house where she was staying on Chestnut Avenue and walked to the nearby tram stop, where she got a lift to work, a far cry from the deafening silence of rural life back in Sligo. Molly, the daughter of a wealthy farmer, was escaping what would have been a stifling and extremely predictable life. Had she remained at home, she would have been pressured into marrying relatively early after which she would lose much of her independence to her husband, who would have been the sole source of income in the family. Molly would not have been allowed to work after marriage. In Cincinnati, while emigrant communities could be conservative and overbearing at times, Molly was able to earn money herself, giving her increased control over what she wanted to do in life. While this was an attractive future in many ways for Molly, the scandal that kept her from returning home continued to haunt her new life. That was until the two collided in a terrifying and shocking event on a Cincinnati street on April 25th, 1894. This fateful day started somewhat normally with Molly rising early as usual. However, she was fearful that day. Strange goings on in recent weeks had led her to believe she was at risk of harm. Indeed, this was so serious that on April 25th, the relative with whom she was staying and Mrs Tibbles accompanied her to the nearby tram stop. On reaching the tram, Mrs Tibbles returned to the house on Chestnut Avenue while Molly headed to work. However, not long after she boarded the tram, Molly saw someone who unnerved her. She was so alarmed that she asked the conductor to stop and let her off. Although she was able to escape the tram, the individual, a man, now followed her. On reaching Chestnut Avenue, the safety of the Tibbles house where she was staying came into view. However, the man following her grabbed her at this point and two witnesses thought they seemed to argue. A bystander heard him say, You do as I tell you and you listen to me. He then grabbed her by the hair and threw her to the ground. Molly struggled back to her feet and now petrified ran towards the house. However, her attacker reached into his pocket pulled out a revolver and took aim at Molly. At close range, he shot her through the temple. She collapsed. He then fired two more shots as the life ebbed from the 19-year-old's body. 
Two children on Chestnut Avenue heard him shout at the lifeless corpse, Now will you marry me? These two young witnesses then saw him drop the gun and run. However, before he left the scene, he turned and kicked Molly's body in the face in one final act of humiliation. However, the killer did not get far as bystanders, shocked by what they had seen, gave chase. Indeed, had he not run into a nearby policeman, the crowd may well have beaten him to death in the street. It was little wonder. The crime had been extremely brutal, and furthermore, Molly Gilmartin was the most unlikely of victims in Cincinnati. She had only been in the city three months. She had only arrived in the USA six months earlier. Yet the words uttered by the killer, You do as I tell you, and now will you marry me? implied the two seemed to have known each other. As the police tried to make sense of what seemed to be an incomprehensible crime, they found a deeply unsettling correspondence from the dead woman which helped unravel the case. Not long after she arrived in the USA, back in November 1893, Molly had first made her way west from New York to Springfield, Massachusetts, where she seemed to voice concerns about the USA. In a letter home, she had written, I really never thought that there could be so much badness in the world. However, while this letter seemed to suggest that Molly may have met her killer in Springfield, Massachusetts, the story was far darker. As is nearly always the case with gender-based violence, Molly's killer was not a sinister, evil stranger she had encountered in the seedy underworld of a bustling US city. Instead, he was in fact the very person she had written this letter to, who was then back in Ireland. You see, this man, who had so brutally murdered Molly, was well known to her. Someone, as her letters would reveal, she deeply loved, but also feared. When the police finally got the killer to Cincinnati Central Police Station, he initially proved obstreperous, refusing to talk to any police officer unless he was a Catholic. Then slowly he seemed to open up, revealing his name to be George Reed, although the police were dubious about the truth of this. Letters in his possession revealed he had at least two other names, including a Mr. Brennan. Then, just as the case seemed to be unravelling, the murderer tried to take matters into his own hands with an attempt at suicide. He had brought a small vial of arsenic with him, which he swallowed. He soon began to writhe in agony, screaming for a priest, saying he was dying. Swift action on the part of the police who got him to hospital did save his life. And in the following hours and days, a story began to emerge that was as bizarre as it was shocking and brutal. It had all begun years previously, back in Sligo, in Ireland. Molly Gilmartin's all-too-short life had begun in her family home on June 17th, 1872, in Carroll Riley, County Sligo. Born to Bridget and Dominic Gilmartin, her family lived in comparative comfort for the time. Her father Dominic was a wealthy farmer and they lived in what could be described as a large farmstead. Although newspapers were exaggerated by describing the house as a mansion, it was nonetheless a substantial dwelling with five or six rooms. The full extent of the family's wealth was better seen, perhaps though, in the education of their children. Molly and her brothers were afforded extensive and what was for the time very expensive educations. Two of her brothers had become priests with Michael 
or as he was known in the family, Father Mick, being a well-respected cleric in Chicago by the 1890s. Her other two brothers had become a doctor and a farmer. Molly herself had been educated in the prestigious Ursuline Convent in Sligo Town. To put this in context, many of their neighbours at the time were still struggling with poverty and on occasion hunger four decades after the end of the Great Famine. Few could afford a second level education like the Gilmartin children in a time when thousands were being driven off the land each year. The population of Sligo had fallen by 12% in the 1880s. However, while the Gilmartins' wealth unquestionably made life easier, it was no guarantee of happiness and they suffered their own fair share of personal loss. In late August 1892, Molly's mother Bridget died from a severe kidney infection. Aged only 52, her death had a profound impact on the family, leaving Molly as the only woman in a house with her ageing father, a man already in his 60s. Indeed, Bridget Gilmartin seems to have been concerned about her husband's ability to look after their daughter, because she also asked the local parish priest, Father Dominic O'Grady, to keep an eye out for Molly in the coming years. This was in no small part because of the stage Molly had reached in her life. At the age of 17, she was already attracting suitors from wealthy farmers in the surrounding locality, and while this was exciting, it was also potentially dangerous. Indeed, Molly had already endured a pretty traumatising experience. When she was only 15, she had been harassed by the then local priest, Father Thomas Doyle. The precise details of the abuse are obscure, but around 1890, Father Doyle, a man in his late 50s, had developed what newspapers called an infatuation with Molly. The Gilmartin family, as wealthy farmers, were not without influence and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in Sligo took action. In what is reminiscent of modern practices, the Catholic Church, rather than reporting Doyle to the authorities or defrocking him, instead sent him to a new diocese in New South Wales, Australia, and the official reason given for his transfer being his supposed ill health. He was replaced by Father Dominic O'Grady, a very different individual. He was far younger, he had only been recently ordained and was still in his late 20s, and Molly's mother, as she lay dying, looked to this young, influential priest to help guide Molly through the coming years. Her mother knew only too well the long-term consequences of the decisions that now lay ahead of her only daughter. These all revolved around marriage, which could be the most important decision a woman took. While women married relatively young, it was not uncommon for their husbands to be up to 20 years their senior. After marriage, it was common for women to spend their 20s and 30s either pregnant or recovering from birth, just in time to spend their 40s and 50s as a care for a husband who by this stage would be heading towards old age. For example, my great-grandmother, Bridget Dwyer, who was around the same age as Molly, was married at the age of 22 in 1887. Her husband, my great-grandfather, was in this instance eight years older than her. Over the following 18 years, she gave birth to 13 children before she died at the age of 40 in 1905, with exhaustion presumably playing a role in her death. With such a potentially difficult time ahead of her, Molly's mother undoubtedly hoped the young priest, Father O'Grady, might secure a husband who would at least treat her daughter well, because ultimately women had few rights in late 19th century Ireland. Indeed, the way women were viewed had been tragically clear when Molly Gilmartin's mother had died. Although standard for the time, her obituary referred to her as Mrs. Dominic Gilmartin, never mentioning her by name. The loss was his in many ways, not hers. Molly, however, seems to have been headstrong and was able to do what she wanted to some extent. 
By the summer of 1893 she was pursuing what she thought would make her happy and she had developed a secret relationship with a man in Cara O'Reilly. This relationship was a love that could not be spoken of. It would have scandalised the conventions of the age had it become known. However, love is not something we can necessarily control and by the summer of 1893 Molly had fallen hard for the most unsuitable of men, a man she often referred to as George Reed. Nothing is known about the early months of Molly Gilmartin's relationship with George Reed. Indeed, even when it began is unclear, but by the summer of 1893 they had started seeing each other, even engineering a situation whereby they shared a night train back to Sligo from a community excursion to Ulster, which allowed them to be alone together. While the letters between the two show Molly was clearly in love with Reed, the relationship developed in the most unhealthy of fashions. Abusive and extremely jealous, Reed was very controlling of Molly. When another local man, Bill Crosley, wrote to Molly asking her out, she gave the letter to Reed, who obsessed over it. He was still carrying it with him several months later. While the relationship was clandestine, we do know that something happened in the autumn of 1893 that changed the dynamic. Reed began to pressure Molly to leave Sligo. Why exactly this was was never clear, but for Molly this was a major step. Sligo was all she had ever known, but her letters show she was very much in love with Reed, and in October she agreed that she would travel ahead to the USA and he would follow her. Perhaps she hoped in the USA they could start a normal relationship, free from the prying eyes of judgmental friends, family and neighbours. In order to do this, however, Molly needed a reason to leave Carol Riley without raising suspicions, so she told her father she wanted to enter a convent as a nun. In the late 19th century, this was seen as an alternative to marriage for women. It was no surprise that her father agreed and he even gave her a large sum of £200. Now this may have been what was known as a spiritual dowry, money given to the religious order when a woman joined, symbolising her marriage to Jesus. Molly of course had no intention of entering a convent. Instead, she travelled to Dublin where she met up with George Reed, and from there the two crossed to the port of Liverpool, where Molly was due to take a steamship to New York. In Liverpool, Molly begged Reed to continue on with her to the USA, but he refused, saying that there were matters he had to attend to back home, and he returned to Sligo, leaving Molly to travel on alone from Liverpool. His controlling tendencies were increasingly coming to the fore, and even though she had a daunting journey ahead of her, he took most of the £200 her father had given her, Nevertheless, from Liverpool, Molly wrote to Reed, showing she still, in spite of this, had strong feelings for him. When do you intend on coming? Do try and come soon. I am just beginning to think that I shall never see anyone from home again. I am as ever your affectionate, Molly. On October the 11th, she boarded a steamship, the Teutonic, in Liverpool, and while her family were now frantically searching for her in Ireland, she reached New York on October the 17th, 1893. In the US, Molly made her way to Springfield, Massachusetts, where there was a community of Irish Americans from Sligo. From there, she again wrote to George Reed, her lover back in Sligo, in a letter which illustrated he clearly never trusted her. Agnes Quinn has been flirting with some of the boys. I intend to be a good girl now. I should be flirting with fellows, but indeed, I never did it. I know very well you won't believe it. I am as ever your affectionate, Molly. Around this time, Molly also informed her family as to her whereabouts. 
Her brother Michael, known as Father Mick, a priest in Chicago, was able to get in touch with her, as is clear from Molly's next letter, written to Reed back in Sligo. It was obvious that her departure was now causing uproar back home, and the consequences of running away were surely starting to hit Molly. Returning home would already have been very difficult at this point, as this letter indicates. I had a letter from Father Mick today, and he gave me a great scolding. He wants to know what I've done with £200, who left me in Dublin and who planned my leaving, that I've brought disgrace on my family. Now, could you please tell me what I am to do? Give me a full explanation what it is all about and send me as quickly as possible the receipt of the money. I cannot tell you how sorry I am should I be the means of causing you any trouble. Heaven knows I would not if I could possibly help it. Goodbye. Right immediately. I'm yours, etc. Molly. This letter reached Reed in Sligo in early November and this seems to have spurred him on to follow Molly to the USA on November the 6th. Eleven days later he reached Springfield, Massachusetts where he was reunited with her and the pair now embarked on a journey moving slowly westwards in the direction of Chicago. On this journey Reed's diary leaves the impression of this being a honeymoon period for the relationship. They visited Niagara Falls and lived as husband and wife. He recorded in his diary on November the 17th, left Springfield with M. Siegel Martin, arrived in Albany, spent first night together, both resolved to quench it forever. We were so happy. However, if this was their honeymoon, it was leading to a swift separation. They were making their way to Chicago where Molly's brother, Father Mickle Martin, was waiting and there was no possibility he would ever give his blessing to this relationship. And indeed, when they met Father Mick, the two were not that well prepared. They tried to claim that their relationship was entirely innocent. Some Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire 
to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. I think that was scarcely credible in an era when a man and a woman travelling alone aroused suspicion. Father Mick Gilmartin managed to separate the two and convinced Reed to go back to Ireland where he had major questions to answer. Indeed, if ever the two could be together, he did need to resolve matters back in Ireland. To understand this and indeed why their relationship was so controversial, next we need to turn to this man, George Reed, and look at who exactly he was. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. I hope you're enjoying this episode. It took a lot of research, something that was only possible with the support of show patrons who pay for the research, access to archives and all the running costs of the show. Patrons are listeners just like you who have signed up on Patreon to give a monthly contribution towards running the show. They receive early access to ad-free episodes. They don't hear this, for example. Episode guides and exclusive patrons-only podcasts. At the moment, show patrons are helping with a very ambitious target at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You see, I'm hoping to hire a researcher to help deliver two major projects which will transform the show. The first is a major new series on the Irish War of Independence that will begin later in the year when I conclude the Great Famine series. This is going to focus on just eight people who lived through these remarkable days and through their lives you'll get a sense of what the Irish struggle for independence was like from several viewpoints. The other target is to relaunch a second podcast called This Week in Irish History. If I get to hire this researcher, you'll not only get lots more content, but hopefully the show will become even better. With the support of current patrons, I'm already 80% of the way towards reaching the target needed. And with your support, we can get the whole way there, something that will transform the show. As I say, you'll receive lots of bonus content such as early access to the show, ad-free podcasts, episode guides and exclusive patrons-only podcasts. You can sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. And you spell that p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When the police in Cincinnati initially questioned Molly's killer, they were immediately suspicious that he was lying when he gave his name as George Reed. Perhaps they had been tipped off by members of the Cincinnati Irish-American community who were by this stage well aware of the killer's true identity. Furthermore, Molly's brother, Father Mick Gilmartin, also knew who he was. This individual who used the name George Reed had been born in Sligo and came from a family that, in different circumstances, would have made an ideal husband for Molly in the late 19th century. His parents were wealthy and not unlike the Gilmartins. His five brothers were all priests, while his sister had become a nun, something that elevated the status of a family in 19th century Ireland. However, while their religiosity made Reed an ideal potential husband for Molly Gilmartin, 
It was also the very reason why he could never marry her and why their relationship was so scandalous. George Reed had in fact followed his siblings into the church. He had been ordained a priest in 1888 and then assigned to the parish of Bernada. Around 1890, the Bishop of the Diocese of Ahenry had relocated him in the hope that he could rebuild confidence after a scandal in the church. This was when he arrived in Carroll Riley. George Reed was one and the same as the local priest, Father Dominic O'Grady, sent to Carroll Riley after the previous priest had been sent to Australia for harassing Molly. This was the same Father O'Grady who back in 1892 had promised to look after Molly on her mother's deathbed. It's worth reiterating that Catholic priests are forbidden to marry or have relationships with women. Furthermore, O'Grady as a priest was not only a leader but also a moral guardian for the local community. He preached about morality and abstinence from sex before marriage. While the relationship made him a hypocrite, there's also problematic aspects to it as well. Molly's dying mother had entrusted him to look after her daughter, an important task in light of the fact that she had been harassed by the previous priest. O'Grady undoubtedly had abused this position of trust even if Molly was 18 when they began their relationship. While the relationship was unquestionably dangerous for O'Grady, it was by no means risk-free for Molly. Aside from the scandal, the fact was that she could very easily find herself being blamed were it to emerge, as we'll see later. She also ran the risk that she could potentially forever remain a priest's mistress. Now Molly was adamant that this would not happen to her and she had demanded that O'Grady leave the priesthood, although he was not as committed to this course of action as he said. While he unquestionably gave Molly the impression that he would leave the church to pursue a relationship and a life with her, his actions when he arrived back in Ireland, having left her in Chicago, revealed very different intentions. After he left Molly in Chicago, George Reed, aka Father Dominic O'Grady, arrived back in Ireland with a lot of explaining to do. He had upped and left his post without telling anyone and when he returned he was summoned by the Bishop of the Diocese of Ahenry, John Lister, to explain his absence and answer for the rumours that insinuated he had run away with a 19-year-old parishioner. While he denied the allegations, O'Grady knew he could never hope to serve as a priest in Sligo or probably Ireland again. So he asked the Bishop to give him what was known as an exit, essentially letting him seek a position elsewhere. He also needed the bishop though to give him a reference in order to find this new posting. In that time-honoured practice in the Catholic Church, Bishop John Lister, fully aware of what Dominic O'Grady had done but wanting to rid himself of what he saw as a troublesome priest, granted the exit and gave him a reference which gives us a rare insight into how abuse in the Catholic Church may have operated through the last century or more. Bishop Lister's reference for O'Grady read as follows. Father O'Grady has asked me for a letter of testimony. He was ordained by me in December 1888 and served in this diocese with efficiency and zeal until November 1893. During that period he gave no complaint and was regular and attentive to his sacred duties. On the latter date he suddenly left without my consent or even knowledge. He reappeared on the 23rd of December and informed me that he had been in America Owing to the manner of his departure, I gave him his exit. Most Reverend and Dear Bishop, John Lister. While by no means a glowing testimony, Lister made no reference to the specifics of what Dominic O'Grady had done, even though he was fully aware. While Bishop Lister was washing his hands of O'Grady, something that would have huge consequences later in the story, some in Sligo saw O'Grady as the victim. 
Building on centuries-old stereotypes, Manny thought that he had been led astray by Molly. Judging on a letter he wrote to her, O'Grady made it clear that she was being vilified, and she replied in her words, I received your letter this morning. I assure you, it gives me great pains to hear that I've been cursed by the Akanri people. Around this time, when O'Grady returned to Ireland at Christmas 1893, he and Molly were still very much in contact and intent on meeting up again. However, 3,000 miles away on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, life for Molly Gilmartin was getting more and more difficult. She was being attacked on all sides. By Christmas 1893, Molly had been away from home for two months. Since then, the relationship and scandal had broken into the open and was creating uproar. While something like this would be the stuff of tabloid newspapers today, 19th century Ireland was very different. Her family did not have to endure the presence of journalists doorstepping them, but in many ways they suffered something far more invasive, the judgment of their neighbours. From a 21st century standpoint, this case is clearly very, very complex. While Molly, at the age of 19, was able to make decisions for herself, context is everything. The fact that she had run away at the behest of a 30-year-old man entrusted to look out for her would today make us very concerned about her safety in the situation and her ability to make clear decisions. However, in the 1890s, no one thought about this. And it was Molly who came under attack from her family who actually disowned her. In a letter from Chicago at Christmas, she told Father Dominic O'Grady about a letter she had received from her family. I had a letter that said poor father was dying and that he was not able to walk to the door and that he is praying every other day to die. They have no girl. I believe the people are talking very much about us, especially the Protestants. Jim said he's going to leave the country and come out here, that he cannot stay there any longer. He feels it very much. Unsurprisingly, in early 1894, her brother, Father Mick Gilmartin, took measures to end the relationship by sending Molly to a house of a distant relative, the Tibbles, who were a German-Irish family living on Chestnut Avenue in Cincinnati, Ohio. This was an attempt to put her beyond the reach of Dominic O'Grady. However, he had already left Sligo again and arrived back in New York on January the 22nd, 1894. Molly had written to him and already informed him of where she had been sent. However, while their letters were still affectionate and jovial, with Molly joking O'Grady must be tired of crossing the Atlantic, his return to the USA saw him become increasingly aggressive towards her. This started when O'Grady seemed to have suggested that the two should go to California. However, he had not left the priesthood and although Molly was still in love with him, she now took a stand. She would not run away with him again like she had previously in Springfield until he left the priesthood. O'Grady, seemingly fueled by jealousy, could only see deception in her refusal and attacked Molly in a letter. She responded to that letter in the following terms. The thought of deceiving you never entered my mind. I don't see what is in my letter that should have displeased you so much. Only what I say still... I shall never do what I did in Springfield for you. Now, do you think I am fool enough to go with you again and do as I did before? Never till you are released from your vows. Then I shall go with you. After a year, maybe two. However, don't you be afraid that I shall ever deceive you. I love you as much as I did when I left Ireland on your account. 
O'Grady was increasingly delusional and again judging on Molly's letters, continued to demand that she tell him the details of men she was encountering while staying with the Tibbles. This letter, for example, indicates she was responding to an inquiry along those lines. Mrs. Tibbles has three sons and four daughters. Two of the sons are married to American ladies and the other one is married to a German lady. One of the daughters is married to a young doctor in Pennsylvania and there are three more young ladies at home. You never trusted me. You would believe what any other person would tell you sooner than I would. I hope this letter will satisfy you. While the relationship was deteriorating and O'Grady becoming even more and more controlling, Molly received devastating news from the priest while in Cincinnati. News she hinted at in this anxiety-ridden letter. I received your letter the other day and I need not to tell you how uneasy I have been ever since. Now for God's sake, will you tell me if there is something the matter with me or how I know if there is? Molly was in fact pregnant. Tragically, she herself does not seem to have been fully aware, but later newspaper reports, while refusing to publish the full content of the letter in this case, left little doubt by using terms like her condition and the fact that O'Grady had ruined her, both euphemisms for pregnancy. Molly now became desperate as she realised she was pregnant and her next letter revealed her bitterness towards O'Grady. My God. When I think about how cruelly I've been deceived and how you say to tell you if there is anything the matter with me that you would come at a moment's notice. I wish you to understand. If I find anything the matter with me, I shall never write or see you again. I know a way to end my troubles and I shall do it. I once wished I died in poor mam's place, but how much more do I wish it now? I am commencing to understand how foolish I ever was to leave home and to be led astray by one who I thought was so good. Now for Lord's sake, will you write and tell me all and seal your letter? While we might think pregnancy would make O'Grady take stock of the situation and perhaps change his attitude towards Molly, if anything the situation only worsened. Abuse in relationships during pregnancy is far more common than we might expect, with 30% of women who experience domestic violence saying it starts during their pregnancies. This was certainly the case for Molly Gilmartin. In the weeks and months where it became clear she was pregnant, O'Grady's behaviour only grew more and more controlling, but also more erratic. On the one hand, he clearly had no intention of leaving the priesthood, but he also demanded that Molly be utterly loyal to him. He had no consideration for her wants or needs. They eventually met in Cincinnati, but this proved to be utterly shattering for Molly when she realised the situation as it was, that despite all his promises, he was not going to leave the priesthood. She was now in an impossible situation. She was pregnant, but the father of her child was a priest. To rub salt into the wound, he was demanding a letter from her that would totally absolve him of any involvement which he could use as a reference to secure future positions as a priest. While Molly was growing increasingly tired of the man she had loved, his refusal to leave the priesthood did not mean he would leave her alone. In fact, the obsessive behaviour he had always displayed throughout their relationship only increased. By March 1894, he began to stalk Molly, turning up at the house on Chestnut Avenue and demanding a more emphatic letter stating his innocence in the affair. But even when he received this, he only seemed more determined to control her. Indeed, his behaviour grew increasingly dangerous. 
He rented a room in a house which allowed him to constantly monitor Molly's movements to and from the Tibbles' house. Obsessed with the idea she was seeing other men, he was caught looking in the window of the house. On St. Patrick's Day, 1894, there was a celebration in the Tibbles' house and O'Grady, lurking outside, saw Molly talking to a man which made him fly into a rage. He called to the house and demanded to see her. The two were allowed talk for an hour where he made her swear she would be true to him. Molly, by this point, was growing fearful and tired of O'Grady. The priest essentially wanted her to be his mistress while he maintained the illusion that he was a celibate Catholic priest. He would not accept, listen to or understand her perspective, instead trying to exert dominance and control over her. By the fateful day of April 25th, 1894, Molly was so concerned for her safety that she asked Mrs Tibbles to walk her to the tram stop from where she could take the tram to work. We can only imagine Molly's horror when she saw O'Grady on the tram. Little did she know though he was actually planning what was in effect a murder-suicide Molly, while having no sense of how exactly dangerous this man was, still tried to escape, but tragically, as we heard at the start of the show, she didn't make it. Within a few minutes, Molly Martin had been shot dead by the priest, Father Dominic O'Grady. His plan for a murder-suicide failed after he took arsenic, but the police were able to save his life. In the immediate aftermath of the killing, the words he shouted over Molly's lifeless body, Now will you marry me? reveal much about his intentions. His anger was in part at least driven on by Molly's most modest of demands, that he leave the priesthood and then in time they would marry. Instead, he chose the killer. Next, we look at what happened after Molly's murder, when O'Grady went before the courts. Eventually O'Grady was brought before the courts where he tried to claim insanity. He had been heard talking to himself and acting strangely on the day before the murder. However, evidence suggests that O'Grady was sane but a violent criminal. Molly's brother, Father Mick Gilmartin, pointed out that he had clearly planned the attack. He had rented accommodation from where he could monitor Molly. He had brought a gun with him on the day in question and he had even bought poison to kill himself as well. Further to this, he had been a very successful priest back in Ireland, displaying no signs of insanity. While initially declared fit to stand trial, this was appealed while O'Grady went on a long hunger strike. As the one-year anniversary of Molly's murder approached, O'Grady again attempted to end his life by suicide on April 19th, 1895, by hanging himself in his cell. He was cut down by the prison guards and his life was saved. Finally, after numerous court appearances, he was declared insane in March 1896 and never stood trial. He was incarcerated in the Longview Asylum in Ohio, where it was expected he would die not long afterwards. However, he survived, and in 1898 he escaped from the asylum before voluntarily returning. Over a year later, in November 1899, Dominic O'Grady escaped for a second time. Despite a major manhunt, he was never recaptured, with rumours circulating that friends in Cincinnati had spirited across the border into Canada. What happened to the murderer after this is totally unknown. Did he live out his days in Canada? Or perhaps maybe he returned to Ireland? He was, after all, only in his mid-thirties, around 1900. While Father Dominic O'Grady escaped and regained his freedom, tragically, Monigal Martin was quickly forgotten. For two days, the Cincinnati Enquirer covered the story in lurid detail. Journalists filled columns with discussions on Molly's private life. 
Rather than treat the story as a brutal killing, many newspapers framed it as a lover's quarrel. Then after this, it fell from public attention, only being mentioned briefly on the occasions that Father Dominic O'Grady was brought before the courts. Perhaps worse though was the reaction back in Ireland. One might expect large-scale coverage at home of such a sensational crime involving two Irish people. While the story was reported in the British press, it was largely ignored back home. I could only find three publications, the Belfast Newsletter, the Nina Guardian and the Evening Herald that carried details of Molly's murder and these were recycled and often confused versions of reports from the American newspapers. Such limited coverage leads me to suspect that the Catholic Church may have used their considerable influence to hide the story that raised major questions over their handling of Father Dominic Grady when he had first returned to Ireland in late 1893. The truth of the matter we probably never know but sadly, Molly Gilmartin was almost completely forgotten in her home country and her home county. This brings this episode to an end. The next episode is on another Irish woman who was born around the same time as Molly Gilmartin, but lived a remarkably different life. That is, the fascinating story of Peg Sayers. Until next time, Sloan. <laughs>